the Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian, Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. As we roll into hour three, or as I like to call it, the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program, I'm joined by phone from, uh, let's see, let me see if I can get all these titles right. Um, check my notes here. Uh, we have... Um, Oh, who's with me? Songwriter, musician, author, and special investigator Gary Revel. He's written a book called To Live or Maybe Not. He also has a new song called uh, They Slew the Dreamer, or at least I think it's a new song, um, about MLK. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about uh, that and much, much more with my uh, guest who joins me by phone, Gary Revel. Is it Revel or Revel, Gary? Either one is just fine. Uh, the, the British folks and uh, English folks uh, firmly say it's pronounced rebel, and a lot of the, the French back, the people with French backgrounds say that it absolutely rebel. So I answer to it either way. How do you say it? I most often say rebel, but I, sometimes if I'm in a certain environment, I say rebel. So that's why I say it. <laughs> so. So you go both ways with it, too, apparently. Yeah, um, uh, Gary, have, we, have you been on the show before? There's something very familiar about your story and how you got into investigating Martin Luther King's assassination. Uh, I've never been on your, your show. I've, I've been on you know, several others. But uh, you, you, you've uh, interviewed some of my... Uh, some of my authors. I'm also a book publisher. I think you interviewed Donna Frankot not long ago. I published her book. 
Oh yeah, that was that was a fun interview. Yeah. Um, but let's let me let me ask you about all the different hats that you wear. I I mean the obvious uh the obvious joke would be uh you know, can't you hold a job? <laughs> <laughs> uh, exactly. Yeah, that yeah and and that uh yeah. Well, you know, it's it's an interesting uh a story because um Actually, it goes back to when I when I was just uh, my senior year of high school. Uh, I was encouraged by my principal and some others to take uh, the, the test to go to the Naval Academy to have my congressman Robert Stock. Uh, you know, the congressman appoint a couple of people each year to go to the Naval Academy. Right. And they thought I, I had two brothers in the Navy already, and so they thought I was a good candidate. So I took the test to be uh, appointed to the Naval Academy, but then I had the two brothers in the Vietnam War and and the uh, the, the southern uh, local town type uh, male individuals are, are uh, you know, are, are more likely to join the military than probably most most others in the country. And so I just, I just felt like I had to join and not wait on my congressman. So I joined the Navy and and I was uh, called into the personnel office right away and told that uh, the congressman had contacted them and said I, was, I scored the highest of anyone on the test and that he wanted me to get into an officer training program. And since then, really, I've kind of, I was an enlisted man and I was in an officer training track. And then I got into um, a naval intelligence, which I had to, to live kind of a covert life. I became, I, I got a temporary appointment to Lieutenant JG while I was still a enlisted man. So from that point on, that was kind of like I lived more than one life most of the time. And, and apparently it suited you, Gary, because you've done that ever since. And I'm still <laughs> alive to talk about it. <laughs> well, there's that too. Um, but you ended up, um, and, and I want to talk about when, when things happened exactly, because you're a songwriter, a musician, an author. Um, I mentioned parenthetically, uh, that you found yourself investigating the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in association with the U.S. government's House Select Committee on Assassinations. That's um, right. And you have a book, it's called To Live or Maybe Not, but it's being developed into a motion picture, and there's there's some kind of a song connection as well? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. The, the song is called Basically the Dreamer, and the movie is, at this time, the movie is, uh, the working title for the movie is, is Basically the Dreamer, MLK, The Gary Rebel Story. And it's all, it's all really, because, you know, I'm 71 years old now, but uh, when I was 27, I started, I was asked to, to uh, by my attorney friend, Jack Kershaw, he was James Earl Ray's attorney at the time, and he asked me to, to investigate uh, the Martin Luther King assassination. I'd been doing some investigative work for him at that time, and uh, that that one year of my life, 1977, I was 27, has done more to affect my life than anything else. Other than, I guess, other than when I was a child, I became a Christian. But other than that, that 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 one year has affected my life more than anything else. 
And you ended up meeting with uh, James Earl Ray. Oh, yes. I spent, I spent a year uh, meeting, meeting with him quite frequently um, uh, throughout the House Assassinations Committee hearings. They would send, uh, they, first they sent to Richard Scraggs, who was the chief counsel for the House Assassinations Committee, and a team of investigators and lawyers to Brushy Mountain Prison. I had already met James Earl Ray by then. And, and knew his story and, and knew uh, that I was going to investigate the whole thing to see if he was guilty or innocent. But uh, they, came, uh, they came in there and started, uh, you know, they would spend sometimes six to eight hours a day sitting in the conference room, room uh, you know, other than uh, breaks and, and lunch, and grilling him, you know, about his life. And this went on for several weeks throughout 1977, after Richard Sprague was fired, then, uh, of course, uh, Robert Lanier, the deputy chief counsel, he, he put the up. But I was, I was in all of those meetings, plus I had dozens of meetings with James O'Reilly myself and others, like when Mark Lane, the attorney Mark Lane, come to uh, interviewing for a French television show. I was there, and then I, I, I met with him alone many times as well. So, yeah, so, see, I, I got to where I called him Jimmy. I got to know him so well, um, and I can tell you for sure he wasn't a murderer, and he wa he was in no way that he was the man who shot and killed Martin Luther King Jr. Now, so many people feel so strongly that he was, and that's the end of the story, and yet you talk about uh, They Slew the Dreamer is the name of a song. We're going to hear the song in a little bit, but um, what? who's they? Well, they, they was a team, a team of assassins. When James was broken out of the Springfield prison, and uh, he, he was, from that point on, he was mentored or guided and helped along the way. Uh, first, he, was, uh, he went and he worked a little bit, I think, at a golf course, and then, then they uh, took him to, to Canada to the Neptune Bar there, and at the Neptune Bar, he met, uh, Lucian Sarti. Lucian was the, um, the the godfather of the mafia in Canada. He ran he ran the whole operation of drugs and and guns and guns and uh, you know other uh, illegal activities that was crossing the Canadian and American border. And then E. Howard Hunt, uh, E. Howard Hunt was the CIA guy who ran a lot of operations for the CIA. And at that time, he was in charge of an operation to develop a team of assassins to take out Martin Luther King. He had already took out John F. Kennedy. So the next, the next mark was Martin Luther King Jr. Now, what was the CIA's interest in taking out Martin Luther King? Most, most people talk about uh, the FBI and, and the kind of... Uh, tabs they kept on him and what J. Edgar Hoover thought. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, J. Edgar Hoover was very much part of this whole thing. He, and, and, and as you learn about this whole thing, uh, if you ever see the movie, you'll see how important J. Edgar Hoover was, was with it, too. But uh, uh, the thing about E. Howard Hunt, uh, he ran these assassination teams that were connected with the mafia. Now, the mafia and the CIA, uh, the mafia has had, had a partnership going all the way back before World War II. And during World War II, the mafia helped 
helped us in Italy. Uh, the mafia helped us on the uh, on, on the waterfronts there in Jersey and New York back uh, during the war, during World War Two. There's always been a relationship. Whereas the the CIA could hire these people to do something, and then if they got caught, the U.S. government said, oh, "We know nothing about it because these were just mobsters." You know, this is this is a mafia thing. <coughs> Excuse <me>. Right. Excuse <coughs> me. But. Uh, but but with the with the with the mafia's interest and, and the CIA's interest, the number one thing is the Vietnam War. Now, if you remember, John F. Kennedy got killed in November of '63, and this was just like about three weeks after he sent a letter to the national security folks saying, "I want you to bring back a thousand troops by the end of this year," and then the, by the end of 1964, I want all of our people out of Vietnam. Now, this was effectively ending the Vietnam War. At that time, the mafia was making about $30 billion a year on the heroin pipeline, which was heroin coming out of Burma down the Mekong River through the South China Seas, which were protected by the U.S. military. So, in effect, we were protecting the mafia's shipping route to bring heroin into the United States. And if the Vietnam War had ended... As the mafia said, you're going to be taking food off my table. And so you think that they played a role in the assassination of JFK as well? Oh, absolutely. It was the same team. E. Howard Hunt run both teams. He ran the, and I didn't know this. And when E. Howard to, Hunt, of course, uh, later became known to many, many people because of his link to the CIA, but also to the White House after the Watergate burglary. He, he is really the link that caused that story to continue to be followed. Oh, yeah. He, he, was, he had an office right there near Nixon in the White House, and he ran, that, he ran the covert operations for Nixon. Now, if you don't know what a covert operation is, let me let me describe it for those who may not know. Sure. A covert a covert operation in the United States of America is something that the government does either through an intelligence agency, uh, a, 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 a you know a law office, a legal department, anything that the U.S. government does, and then they set it up. Another term for it, to some, is false flag. They set it up. To be, to be something that someone else did if they got caught. So that the government of the United States, whether it's the CIA, FBI, whoever, can say, oh, we have nothing to do with that. Gary, I have to take a break here. Um, can you stick around for a few minutes? So sure. we, so we, Good. So we can talk some more. Uh, my guest is uh, Gary Revel. He... Uh, is uh, an author, an investigator, a uh, songwriter. In fact, we're going to hear a song by him called They Slew the Dreamer coming up on the other side of the break. In the meantime, if you're listening to us on 92.1 LPFM in Flint, they are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my friend Paul Herring. And we're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming the show at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We'll have more with Gary Revel when we return. Stay tight. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Dr. Comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You are, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Hello. Speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. 
Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome back, everybody. We continue my conversation with actually the uh, songwriter behind the music we just heard. They slew the dreamer, Gary uh, Revel, and he uh, joins me by phone. Uh, Gary, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Ah, you're good. Um, Gary, we were talking about uh, your investigation of uh, Martin Luther King's assassination and the song, of course, They Slew the Dreamer is about that event. Um, what is the connection um, and and where is the progress on, on the movie? Where, what's the connection between the book, which is uh, To Live or Maybe Not, and the song we just heard, They Slew the Dreamer, and the movie, They Slew the Dreamer, MLK, The Gary Revel Story? Well, the book... Uh well, let's start with the song. The, the song I wrote in 1977, after I had met James Earl Ray and was able to do some preliminary investigation and came to the uh, awful realization that James Earl Ray had nothing to do with actual the actual shooting and killing of Martin Luther King. He didn't even know it was going to happen, and he was not even in the building when it happened. But when that realization came to me, I wrote this song, They Slew the Dream. As a matter of fact, uh, I was at my, uh, my, my uh, Jack Kershaw's office that day, and I was, uh, you know, deep in thought about the whole thing. And I walked down, and I sat down beside a little creek, a little spring that ran through the office property. 
and that's where I wrote the song. I had my guitar, and I wrote that song, Basically the Dreamer. From there, uh, eventually in 2006, uh, in that, for years I thought that the, uh, both uh, Richard Sprague, who was uh, chief, uh, chief counsel for the House Select Committee on Assassination, and then, and then the deputy chief counsel, Robert Lehner, had followed up and assured me several times during 1977 that my name would never be known. They would never release the fact that I had been a special investigator on the King assassination. Because that, that was the kind of work it was supposed to be, undercover. Uh, so uh, I, I, was just, I, was, I was just a friend and a songwriter. I was a friend of Jack Kershaw and a songwriter. That's all the public knew about me during that time. Uh, so uh, when, in 2006, I found a book published by the uh, government printing office and it was the actual transcripts of the recordings that I made during those meetings. And in those meetings, of course, we introduced ourselves. And I introduced myself, Gary Rebel Special Investigator. And this, from that, you know, when they published that book, from that point, it was public knowledge. And I didn't even know it had been published. They didn't warn me. They didn't tell me or nothing. It had been published ever since, like, 1979 or 8, sometimes after the House Assassination Committee had, had completed. And so for, for many years, I, you know, I got a lot of uh, threatening phone calls and stuff like that over the years, and I had no idea that they had released my name. And so then in 2006, that's when I started writing the book. Because I figured, well, if, you know, if they've already <clears throat> blew my cover, I might as well explain the whole thing myself. And so I just, it was a book. Actually, the book is just therapy. It was me just writing my, my memoirs, my stuff I remember. And there's only about three chapters in the book that deal directly with my investigation. But those are very important chapters and important facts related to the whole thing. And then after that, uh, of course, I met uh, uh, William Sachs, who's the movie producer. And he's the first one, him, and, uh, and we got the message to Ted Turner. And Ted Turner's the first one who wanted to do a movie about it. The first option agreement I signed was with Turner Broadcasting because uh, Turner had an interest in getting the movie made. Of course, we, we had a year uh, option on it, and they weren't able to bring it together within a year, so it returned to me. But ever since then, there's been many producers who've been telling me they want to make the movie, but it, it looks like it's getting serious now, and I have some... some I'll have uh, Jeff Ong, who is a, um, who is a mainstream... Um, a producer and uh, well, he's been a colorist. He, he's he's been part of the team that made almost every major motion picture blockbuster in the last twenty years, beginning with Titanic. Uh, he did. Uh, he's done many of the top uh, uh, gross top grossing films over the last twenty some odd years. So he's in, he's in it now. He's he's the new producer and director of the movie. So it, it looks like it's going to come together now. The it seems to me I, I have a vague memory of, of having a guest on the show sometime in the last couple of years that had written a book called Chasing King's Killer. Are you familiar with it? I've heard the title. I don't recall reading the whole thing. I've probably read excerpts from it. I, I just the reason that I ask is I just wonder um, what how your conclusions compared to other writings on the subject. 
is yours the only book that reveals the the E. Howard Hunt and um, uh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover connections? Well, I'm I'm the only one that I know of that's ever ever put it together the way I put it together. Um, I, but I've only this year started talking freely about it because I've, I've learned that all the people who would want to kill me for talking about it are dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's got to be reassuring at night, Gary. Um, yeah. Gary, how did you end up getting into publishing? Uh, I had published a book with Jack Kershaw in 1975 or so called The String Bean Murders, which was uh, the, the detective. I don't know if anyone knows who String Bean is. Someone knowing, someone remember. He was the banjo player on Hee Haw, and he was a big star in the country. Please guys, he was a banjo player for many years. But he would carry, uh, he, he didn't believe in banks. His dad had lost his money during the Great Depression. And he owned a big home in Nashville, and then he lived in the guest house out back because he was a real down-to-earth fellow. He wore overalls all the time. And he would carry a roll of $100 bills in his overalls, and if somebody needed money, he'd just pull them out and peel off a hundred or two for them. <laughs> but, um, I, of course, folks got to know about this who were bad people, and a couple of them ended up waiting for him one night at his home and they was listening to him on the Grand Ole Opry, and they were drinking his beer, sitting at his table, just waiting for him to get home. And when he got home, they robbed him and killed him, chased his wife, fell out into the yard. She fell down begging for her life, and they killed her. And uh, the detective who followed the ca- followed up on the case and, and um, found them and, and helped, to, helped to get them prosecuted wrote a book about it, and I, I, me and Jack published that book in the mid-1970s. That's the first publishing uh, venture I had, but then after that, then when, it, then when I published, when I wrote my own book and published it, after that, I, people started asking me to publish their books, and now I've got over 40 books published through my book company, Younger Books. And now you did investigations into MLK's assassination as we've been talking about but also the assassinations of jfk and rfk Um, john kennedy and bobby kennedy how how were you able to get at information when you didn't really i mean you weren't a member of any official organization or agency how were you able to access information and and do these investigations um number one and number two how were you able to do that without having somebody uh take you out in the middle of the night okay well that, there's a lot of packages in those two questions um uh let me go back to when i was in the navy i, I had joined the navy and, and while i was in the navy uh i started taking some uh, well I was volunteered. I met with two men from the Defense, uh, Defense Intelligence uh, Agency, VA, and uh, they more or less volunteered me to get involved in investigations to help my country, so to speak. And with that, I got involved in naval intelligence. 
and I did some covert work. But I did some drug interdiction and some counter espionage work while I was in the Navy. And I, I believe, uh, as I look back, as I began to look back on it many years later, when I was in Nashville working with Jack Kershaw and doing some investigative work for him, some, someone somewhere recognized uh, my uh, experience and abilities, and they arranged for Jack to ask me to investigate the Martin Luther King assassination. So that's how that came about. Um, uh, and then, um, with what was the other question? Well, how were you able to get information uh, during these investigations that you did, and and how were you able to investigate these things without irritating somebody to the point that they'd want to take you out? Well, they they did want to take me out. They tried to take me out many times. They killed my brother, uh, uh, Ray Fillingdale Jr. They killed him during my investigation. And I went down to his funeral, and uh, I, I got a call from some folks, and they said, uh, we have to talk. They want you to meet us at the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami by the pool, and they gave me a description of the of an umbrella and said, uh, if, if we're there, we'll be sitting under this particular umbrella, and if we're not, we want you to sit there until we get there. So I went to Miami Beach, and at the Fountain Blue, I met a couple of guys, and we went out and uh, they they drove me uh, to a meeting, which ended up being a, a conference room with an intercom phone on the table. Now, my brother had just been found hanging dead in my mother's garage only a couple of weeks before this meeting. And uh, when I got there, one of the first things one of the guys said is, you're looking to be fitted with some cement shoes. And... Uh, uh, at that point, I said, well, I don't really threaten that easily. And then the fellow on the intercom said, we want you to be a good boy. We want you to quit all this uh, MLK, uh, MLK assassination stuff. And uh, and I said, well, you know, I, I really can't do that. And, and he said, well, he said, you don't want what happened to your brother to happen to your wife and your children now, do you? And, of course, I said no. But uh, from that meeting, uh, I, I concluded they were representatives of the killers of Martin Luther King and John F. Kennedy because uh, I had my Martin Luther King investigation had led me to the JFK assassination. I saw the similarities and the possibilities of the connection. But by that time, I was starting to look at both of them. Uh, when I got back home to Nashville, this was down in Florida, when I got back home to Nashville and went to my apartment, it, it was completely destroyed. Every item in my apartment had been moved out. There were large holes dug in the front. I mean, there's pictures of all this. Uh, and, and inside, and um, I went to the manager, and, and uh, she said, well, they thought there was a water leak in your apartment, so we had to move everything out. Well, obviously, that was a lie. They were just looking for my files and everything. And ultimately, I did, after my brother was killed, and then Bill Sullivan, who I, so, now Bill, Bill Sullivan, William Sullivan, he had been the director of intelligence for the FBI, and he had ran the Destroy King Squad for many years. Uh, so he was very much part of that whole thing that, that uh, whereby Martin Luther King got killed. 
but when but at a certain point in time, he told me, he said, I went to J. Edgar Hoover, and I told him, I said, it's either me or you. I can't continue doing this. He said, either you go or I'm going. And so the next day, he went back to his office, and it was locked. So he, of course, concluded that it was him that was going. And uh, but, but, but William had turned to leave. He, he had turned over and said, look, I, I, you know, I can't live with this. I'm going to have to come clean about it. And when I get to, he had given me some files, and that was much of the the, the uh, secret information that I got during that time that led me uh, to find out the facts about what happened. But the, a week before he was to testify, the House Assassination Committee, he was shot and killed in his hometown up there. And I think it's Sugar Hill, Vermont, or somewhere like that up there. Uh, he just went out for a walk that morning. And a tw- some twenty-some-odd-year-old young man, who was the son of a local sheriff or deputy sheriff, he shot and killed William Sullivan, saying he thought he was a deer. But after that, my brother and then I get back, and ultimately they stole all my files, even any little scrap of paper I had a note on. It was all gone. At that time, I, you know, I did decide. Well, I probably uh, will never be able to prove anything, so I need to just lay low for a while. So I, I kept quiet for about 20 years and that's probably the reason I'm not dead is because I did what they wanted to, me to do and that was just to shut up and go away um, Gary I did I read someplace that you investigated Michael Jackson I, well I did when I was in when I was living in Hollywood my daughter had had, had done some background singing for Michael and I knew some of those people involved in it and uh, apparently, um, I'd heard when I was at the studio, a woman talking about that Michael Jackson had had another record from another label. And I, all I ever knew was he was discovered by Motown Records and Diana Ross. So I, when I heard that, I overheard that, I, I shook my hand. I started walking out of the room. I thought, I can't listen to this crazy stuff, you know. Everybody knows that Motown and Diana Ross discovered the Jacksons. But then it struck me, well, maybe she tells me, so I went back and sat down, I listened to a little more, and uh, I, had, I was hearing that he had a little hit record in Gary, Indiana, and I thought, oh, this can't be true. But anyway, in a couple of weeks, I got a call from a fellow named Ben Brown, and he wanted to meet with me. And uh, ultimately, we, we arranged a meeting at the Musso uh, Frank's Grill in Hollywood, on Hollywood Boulevard, that's where I would have sometimes not have my meetings. And... Um, he and his wife told me the whole story of Michael Jackson. It's about two hours. Uh, he had a hit record in Gary, Indiana. He had a label called Steel Town Records and all this, and that, that Barry Gordy and Motown had, had uh, squashed all that history because they wanted their official story to be that Diana Ross discovered them. And he wanted me to help get the true story out. And I'm always interested if there's facts. The actual fact about things that for some reason the powers that be is trying to keep from the, the public from knowing about it, then I'm interested. So that interested me, and that's when I got involved in, a, in an investigation into the life and the career and the music of Michael Jackson. Well, Gary, um, there are so many things to talk about, and I feel like we've just uh, scratched the surface and we just have uh, a, a couple of minutes left. Um, 
What's a good way? I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. And there's a lot of different uh, hats that you wear. Is is there yeah. some place where people can can dig through and and find out more about what we've been talking about? Well, they can if they want to know about my uh, my my books, my music, and my movie stuff. They can go to GaryRevel.com. Uh, if they want to know, if they want to read, uh, if they want to buy To Live or Maybe Not the book, they can go to Amazon and just say, Google To Live or Maybe Not by Gary Revel. Uh, if they want to hear my music, they can just ask their local radio station to play They Flew the Dreamer. So it's, it's, it's as simple as that. How, how long before the movie comes out? Well, we're in, the, in what's called the pre-development stage, so oh. we're actually developing financing and we're looking at alias some alias actors to get it like we're looking we talking we have some talks with uh, Matthew McConaughey's agent about him playing Jack Kershaw in the movie um, we've got a couple of others that would want to play the role of James Earl Ray that'll be James Earl the James Earl Ray role will be a very powerful and impactful role especially the thing where he's at the Memphis uh, Bill and they've got Lots on them, twenty-four hours a day, and they're they're using, uh, you know, they're, they're using mental torture to get him weakened to the point that he would agree to plead guilty. And even then, he didn't plead guilty to the to the crime of killing him. He thought he was just pleading guilty that he was involved somehow. And he didn't even know how he was involved. But yeah, it's, it's a very complex uh, situation, and that's why I want the movie to be made, as people will understand it. Then. Is is the script done? Oh yeah, we got a we got a finished screenplay. Like I say, Jeff Jeff Arm is involved in that. Jeff and that's O L M. If you if you Google him at uh, the IMDb, you'll find out he he was, he helped make some of the greatest movies ever made. Is it a script of its own, Gary, or is it uh, based on the book To Live or Maybe Not? No, no, it's my story. The book, the movie will be about the Gary Rebel investigation. It'll be. It's almost, I mean, see, I, some of the work I did, I got, I got, not only did I almost get killed, except that I got into gunfights. I met with the Carlos Marcello down in New Orleans. And th- there's some really, it's, you know, it, it's a kid, it's, it's not a James Bond movie, but it, it, it's an action thriller. It gets into that arena. Well, Gary, and, you've, you've led a pretty run. Go ahead. Yeah, it's when, it was when I was 27 years old. It's not, it's not me now. <laughs> I was going to say you've led a pretty uh, a pretty fascinating life, Gary. I, I, I agree, and I'm I'm blessed by God that, that I had it, and I'm blessed by God that I'm still alive to talk about it. Well, Gary, thanks so much for uh, sharing some of your story with me and the listeners this morning, and spending this time with me. It's been a real uh, a real privilege. I enjoyed it, sir. God bless you. All right. Take care. Thank you. Again, that was Gary Revel. He um, has uh, written about his uh, inquiry into the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, a movie based on uh, on him uh, called uh, "They Slew the Dreamer." MLK, the Gary Revel story, is 
in the works, as they say. We're going to take a uh, short break, let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. And uh, if you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We'll be back with the final segment of today's edition of the Tom Sumner program right after this. Hey, (laughs) this is the Unknown Comic. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Bye from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. Today. Hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County. Where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods. And in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. 
Your trip begins at Michigan.org. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. The uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Summer 
Ladies and gentlemen, in Philip Rapp's creation, The Bickersons! What's the matter? All right, all right. Blanche! Blanche! I'm putting a ribbon in my hair. Where are you going? I'm not going anywhere. I just thought I'd like to look nice this morning. Why? I knew you'd forget. You don't even know what day this is. I do, too. It's rent day. It is not. Today happens to be our wedding anniversary. Well, I knew it was a sad occasion of some kind. What kind of a remark is that? That's supposed to be funny. No, it isn't supposed to be funny, Blanche. I'm just groggy, that's all. I'm sorry. I knew you'd forget. I didn't forget it. So why didn't you say something? Blanche, I just opened my eyes. You forgot it. I tell you, I didn't forget it. But even if I did, you'd remind me of it. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Is that all? No plans? We've been married eight years. Don't you want to do something? No, it's too late to do anything. It's sad about you, how you suffer. I didn't get such a bargain, you know. Okay, okay. There's better fish in the ocean than the one I caught. There's better bait, too. I'm serious. Okay, I'm sorry. You hack away at me in the morning, and I'm so exhausted, I don't know what I'm saying. You wouldn't be so exhausted if you went to bed at a reasonable hour. I had to work overtime. Pour me some coffee. Get paid? I'll get paid. What time did you get home? 12.30. If you got home at 12.30, why were you so long getting into bed? I know for a fact you didn't come to bed until almost 2. I was in the kitchen putting the stuff away. What stuff? What's the matter, Blanche? You told me to bring stuff home for the party tonight. You invited a lot of your crumb friends and you told me to bring stuff, so I brought stuff. Did you bring the potatoes for the potatoes? salad. I brought potatoes. Did you pair them? I paired them. All of them? All except one. He had a big knob on top and I couldn't find a mate for him. I meant... I know what you meant, Blanche. I even boiled them last night. Where are my pants? Who stole my pants? Nobody stole your pants. I just looked in the wastebasket and they're not there. My shoes are missing from the sink. Don't be silly, John. Your pants are on a hanger in the closet and your shoes are in the shoe rack. How'd they get there? I put them there. Well, I wish you'd quit throwing my things around like that. (laughs) Gotta get them or I'll be late. You won't be late. Here are your pants. Thanks. Blanche, these aren't my pants. They're not? Then whose pants are they? That's a good question, only I should be asking. Don't be so snobby. They were baggy, so I pressed them. Baggy? Took me an hour to find the right crease. Be careful you don't wrinkle them now. What's the difference? I like my pants to look lived in. You're dragging the tops on the floor. Hold your trouser leg with your left hand, then step in with your right foot. Blanche, I've been putting on my own pants for over 40 years, and I don't need you to be the foreman of it. Which one? It doesn't matter. I want to use it for a belt. My suspenders are broken. Why don't you wear your belt? I'm using it to keep the soles from falling off my shoes. John Fitterson, you know you're just... I know it. I know I haven't got a belt. Where's my shirt? Where did you hide my shirt? I didn't hide it anywhere. Well, where is it? I draped it around the canary's cage so he could sleep. Is my shirt the only rag you could find to cover the bird's cage with? Hasn't hurt anything, has it? No, but I don't like the way that bird pokes into my pockets. Every time I take a cigarette out, I'm smoking bird seed. Why do you have to cover the cage anyway? The canary is sensitive to light. Well, get him a pair of sunglasses. Leave my shirt alone. No bird's going to sleep later than I do. Ah, shut up. John, why must you be so mean on our anniversary? Blanche, I'm not mean. I'm worried. 
Business is bad. My job is hanging by a thread. You never should have quit your other job. You made me quit. You said it wasn't dignified selling bowling balls. You were embarrassed to answer when people asked you what your husband sold. Well, it sounded like it was trying to start a fight. That's no problem for you. I gotta go. Here, and don't forget your samples. I won't forget. This darn vacuum cleaner gets heavier every day. Straighten this hose around my neck, will you, Blanche? There, there. Now, got everything? I think so. No, wait a minute. You got any money? Well, there's 50 cents in the sugar bowl. 50 cents? You can bring me the change when you come home. Now listen, Blanche, something's got to be done about this. I can't go down to work like a pauper every day. A man's got to have a couple dollars in his pocket. Now don't yell at me. I don't mind going with torn clothes and holes in my socks, but I'm not going to suffer through those lunches anymore. What's the matter with your lunches? You ought to know. You pack them for me. I'm just getting sick of carrying my lunch to work in a paper sack. Why can't I go to the restaurant like the other fellas? John, what are you talking about? I haven't fixed your lunch for two years. Oh, Blanche, every morning of my life I find my lunch wrapped in brown paper on the side of the sink. John, that's the garbage. Goodbye, Blanche. Goodbye, dear. Happy anniversary. Well, that wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner program. Um, want to say thanks to all my guests, interesting uh, people, especially uh, this last hour, Gary Ravel, talking about the uh, movie that's in the works based on uh, his, his life and his investigation of the Martin Luther King assassination called They Slew the Dreamer, MLK, the Gary Ravel story. He's also the author of To Live or Maybe Not. And we heard a song written by uh, Gary called They Slew the Dreamer. We also talked a little bit about his investigation into Michael Jackson's roots and uh, heard a little music by Michael Jackson as well. Also want to say thanks to the authors uh, from the second hour of our three-hour tour, Stephen Engel and Timothy Lyle, authors of Disrupting Dignity, Rethinking Power and Progress in LGBTQ Lives. And we started out the hour um, sort of... uh, thinking about summer a little bit and uh, talking with a um, creative writing teacher, empowerment coach, speaker, and author, uh, Bella Mahaya Carter, whose uh, most recent book, uh, Where Do You Hang Your Hammock, seemed like uh, a good thing to uh, kick off the first official week of summer. Summer, of course, actually started over the weekend, along with uh, Father's Day and the newly anointed national holiday, Juneteenth, and it's about time. That's Smokin' George Winters tickling the ivories, Let me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room. I'll have to close the show with something different, because uh, after tomorrow, all the restrictions are lifting, and I can head out of the studio anywhere I want. But uh, I'm holding off till the 4th of July. In the meantime, I'll see you tomorrow. Good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. 
We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner program. And thanks for listening.